0: Good morning. Um, The first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 to 30, which can be found on page 1105 in the church Bibles. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each, was a, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Acts chapter 12, uh, starting with the last verse, uh, verse 25, which is on page 1107. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet called Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed him and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Seeking some, uh, Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in at Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Sidon, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I, I am not the one who you are looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that ye may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the, the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit.
1: Father, we thank you for those words uh, that in Christ you have made us free, you have made us forgiven, you have prepared a place for us. And we pray for us now as we gather under your word that you would meet with us afresh and speak to us. That we might be joyfully living for you in the week ahead. Amen. Please take a seat. Uh, morning, everybody. Uh, sun's out, isn't it? Time to plan summer holidays, uh, I guess. Oh, this is Cambridge, isn't it? You've probably had your holidays booked since September 2020. I don't know. Um, I, I, we don't often get a newspaper, but when we do, we love to, I love to look at the travel section and look at all those Beautiful places that I'd love to go to, but probably never will. You know, the sort of things I mean. And I really enjoy those um, readers-only offers, uh, those things that you can book. You know, the sort of thing I mean? The, the 14-day luxury cruise in the Aegean Sea. Uh, and they've got such detailed itineraries, don't they? You know, day one, fly to, fly to Athens, uh, night in a hotel, free time. Day two, board the Queen of Rhodes, ship, afternoon tea with the captain. Set sail for Crete. Day three, arriving Creek. Crete. You know the sort of thing I mean. And so it goes on. Yours for only 4999 slightly less if you have an inside cabin. You know the sort of thing? Is that how you like to do your, your holidays? Do you like to have every day planned out in meticulous detail where you're going to go and what you're going to do? Or are you more lastminute.com? Maybe you still haven't got anything booked now. Just see where the wind takes you. That's how you like to do your holidays. Or what about last weekend and the Platinum Jubilee? I guess if you're the royal family, um, you've got to have everything worked out minute by minute, don't you? You've got to know exactly where you are, what time the colours are going to troop, what time the aircraft are going to swoop. You need to know exactly where you are minute by minute. But for others of us, maybe, I don't know, we just uh, grab the nearest quiche, jug of pims, wander down to the village green and, and see what one's going on. Maybe that's more how you like to, to do things. Well. Steve said, so we're carrying on with our series in Acts this morning, and we're getting to the point when the church are starting to get more organized, more thought through with what they're doing. They're starting to become proactive and not just reactive. This was how Jesus set out the plan way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we had a refresher of that last week, looking at Pentecost. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, this isn't the itinerary of a Mediterranean cruise or the street party schedule for the platy-jubes. This is Jesus' salvation plan for Gentiles and Jews. See, Jesus has given us the skeleton plan. Uh, the skeleton plan of of what's going on. And we've seen the disciples respond to that call to move out um, with the gospel further and further away from Jerusalem. You can see on this map what's been going on so far. It's a little bit small, but Jerusalem's there on the right. They've been going down south through Judea and on to Egypt and on to Cyrene in North Africa. And they've been going north through Samaria up to Syria. But as they've been doing that, they've been doing it in a kind of ad hoc way often reactive, unplanned, usually as a result of persecution being scattered, people fleeing to safer places. But as they've gone, we've seen this this pattern uh, as the gospel has been preached, first to the Jews, and now uh, with the calling of Saul and God's message to Peter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the believers are recognizing that the gospel is for Gentiles too. That's the pattern that we're starting to see. And as that gospel is preached... Well, this is what happens. Some believe, some scoff, and others oppose. That's the pattern as the gospel is preached. Some believe, some scoff, and some oppose. But this persecution only serves to grow the church, not stop it. That's the pattern. And now the disciples are starting to get organized. And as Steve said, we're going to focus today on on Paul, who was converted back in Chapter 9, we're going we're to zoom in a little bit on his speech at the end of chapter 13. But look, I, I don't want us to lose the, the, the flow of the story, so just bear with me. I want us to whiz through a couple of the chapters that we've seen already, because I want us to see how the gospel is moving outwards. We're covering a lot of grounds today in terms of, of time, probably about seven or eight years go past, and distance, about 500 miles. So just flick back with me to, to chapter 11, if you've still got that open uh, in front of you. Because I'd love us to notice just a few things from chapter 11, before we get to chapter 13. So notice in verse 20 of chapter 11, the disciples have come and begun to preach the gospel, gospel, not just to Jews, but now to Gentiles. Did you see that? Some people have come from Cyprus and Cyrene to Antioch and begun to speak to Greeks, as well as the Jews. Significant moment. And then flick over the page to verse 25. Now, Barnabas has gone, to, gone from Jerusalem. He's collected Paul from Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And they've stayed for a year meeting with the church. Now, that might pass us by. But this is the first time, I think, that we see a church established outside of Jerusalem. The disciples are getting organized. They're gathering together here in Antioch. And finally, plot the other significant moment, at the end of verse 26. Did you spot that? It was here in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. If you're a Christian here today, that's the first time uh, that people were called Christians, about AD 40 in Antioch. And just jump ahead. We, we, we're going to have to um, skip over chapter 12. You'll have to talk to uh, Sunday club leaders or, or your children afterwards to, to read that great story. But just just pick it up again um, at the, at the start of chapter 13. Because what we have now is the first missionary journey being commissioned. Paul and Barnabas amongst the church in Antioch. The prophets and teachers there, they've prayed, they've been worshipping in the Lord and fasting, and then through the Holy Spirit, they send Paul and Barnabas out to preach the gospel into the wider world. And so begins what we now No, as Paul's first missionary journey gets underway right here. See, Paul had been preaching all over the place since his conversion. At least 10 years have gone past since this moment. He's been busy. But now the church is getting organized. And the task of mission is becoming more thought through. Just have a look at this second map, because this is where they go. See, there's Antioch on the right and you can follow the verses. They, they head down to Seleucia on the coast, and they sail to Cyprus. Cyprus was Barnabas' home turf. And then they travel through from Salamis to Paphos. And then they're off again on a boat north up to Perga on the coast. And then up 100 miles more inland to Pisidian, Antioch, not to be confused with the Antioch that they started from. And, and suddenly we're 500 miles away from where we started. And here's where we'll slow down a little bit. We're going to to walk through the narrative of what happens once they get there. And uh, we're going to pick out a couple of things after that, things that we can maybe learn from from what we see. As we think about our parts in, in God's salvation plan that keeps going, what is our role here in 21st century Cambridge? But for now, let's walk through what happens. So look down to verse 14. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, on the Sabbath, they enter the synagogue. And sit down. That's been their custom, to to go to the the synagogues first, to go to the Jews, and then to Gentiles. And after the the scriptures have been read, in verse 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas are invited to speak. Now, this wouldn't have been an unusual thing to to do. Um, uh, Paul's reputation probably would have gone before him. He would have also been known as a a Pharisee, someone with authority. Um, So he's invited um, to speak. And then look at what he says. Now, lots of us, this, this term have been going through in our small groups, um, God's big picture, a, a nine-week uh, Bible overview. Well, well, here, Paul does a Bible overview in about nine sentences. I don't know if you, you've thought of that. And what he does, he, verses 16 to 22, he, he does a Bible overview focusing on God's promise to gather himself a people, to bring them a place, and to give them a king. In the line of David. That's how he does this Bible overview. God's promise to gather a people for Himself and to give them a king in the line of David, a man after His own heart. So so far, so uncontroversial. From Paul, his audience, a mix of Jews and Gentile converts, would have been familiar with the history of Israel. What he's doing is he's establishing some common ground before he now moves on to show that these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And what's interesting is he's he's done this Bible overview but but what he does now is he carries on using a mixture of Old Testament scriptures but bringing in the eyewitness testimony of the the disciples that he would have gathered over the years of traveling around. Do you see that? So he starts by using the eyewitness testimony, by speaking of what happened to Jesus. That's there in verses 27 to 31. He was condemned unfairly. He was put to death on a cross. He was laid in a tomb, but then raised by God from the dead and then seen afterwards over many days by his disciples. That's the passion narrative, what happened to Jesus. But he doesn't leave it there you'll have picked up that he, he continues to use the Old Testament to make his point, saying this is exactly what was promised. So he quotes Psalm 2, he quotes Isaiah 55, he quotes Psalm 16, all to show that God's ultimate king, the one that was promised, would be one who would be the son of God, not just a human king, and that he would be one who would not see decay, that is to be raised to life. Unlike King David, who in verse 36 was buried with his ancestors where he remains. So that's a little gospel outline, Old Testament night eyewitness testimonies. And he makes clear that, that what he is telling them is gloriously life-changing. It is verse 26. It is, it is the message of salvation. It is good news. It is... Forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers them. In verse 39, it is, it is a justification that could never be obtained by obtaining the law of Moses. Did you catch that? It is extraordinary news that Paul is bringing them a new place, a new message, but one that has been promised from centuries gone by. But as well as holding out this good news, did you notice as well the warning that went with it? So, back in verse 27, as Paul was describing the events that led to Jesus' death, he points out to the people of Jerusalem, uh, he points out that the people of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus and they asked him to be executed. It was all part of God's plan to save his people, but that doesn't excuse the sin of those who put Jesus to death. And then, more explicitly in verse 40, just jump with me there. Because Paul again quotes the Old Testament and uses the prophet Habakkuk to warn those listening to take care. Take care not to be scoffers. Don't disbelieve the wonders that God has revealed in Christ and therefore perish. There's a warning amongst the good news. So, Paul has set out the gospel message to the the listeners in the synagogue. And just look at how do people react. What is the reaction that Paul gets? Well, I think the reaction comes in two stages. At first, people are delighted. See that in verse 42. Uh, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things. On the next Sabbath, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, urged, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of of God. What a brilliant response. Paul has held out this gospel, this life-changing message, and see what happens at first. People are delighted. People believe. Paul and Barnabas walk on with them and encourage them. They teach them more. urge them to keep going in what they've heard. And they're invited to come back the next week and speak again. And at which point, the whole city comes out to hear them. Wouldn't that be a great reaction to a sermon, eh? Wouldn't that be great for uh, next week uh, the, the, the chairs are full, the, the crowds are desperate to get in, and you'll have to disappoint them because Michael's preaching next week not me. So. But it's a brilliant response, isn't it? People believe, people are excited, people want to hear more. But look what happens when they do speak again. Did you see that in verse 45? That's the second part of the reaction. The Jews who didn't believe, well, they become jealous. And they start to contradict what Paul was saying and start to heap verbal abuse upon them. Suddenly, the atmosphere is a bit uh, more sour, isn't it? Now, it would have been easy for Paul to get discouraged, but he doesn't. He responds boldly to them in verse 46. He tells them, we, we knew this would happen. This too was, was foretold. We had to come to you first but now we're going to the Gentiles, just like God has planned. And then that, that pattern, that twofold pattern repeats itself. Again, believing and opposing. Only this time, both sides are more extreme, extreme. Did you pick that up? Did you see in verse 48? We see that more Gentiles believe. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So There's a big crowds, and now lots of people are coming to Christ, and then verse forty-nine, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. It's not just a few gentle converts from the synagogue believing. Now the gospel is going out to the whole region. But just as the the, the church grows, so does the level of opposition. Is now the Jewish leaders are inciting the rulers of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas, eventually kicking them out of Pisidian Antioch, and so Paul and Barnabas. Is Work there for now, it's done. You see that progression in opposition, it's interesting, isn't it? It moves from from criticism, mockery, to inciting leaders, to stirring up persecution, kicking them out. That's the pattern, that's the pattern that we've been seeing all the way through. As the gospel is preached, some believe, some scoff, some oppose. So what can we take away then from, from what we've seen of Paul in Antioch or in Antioch this morning? Well, here's a couple of things for us to think about as we finish. First is this. I'd love us to be confident in God's words. Be confident in God's words. Now, you'll remember that, that Paul began his sermon by giving that, that Bible overview. And then he, he quoted five times the Old Testament talking about Jesus. But then he, remember, he used that eyewitness testimony of other disciples to speak to them specifically about Jesus. But of course, those eyewitness testimonies that Paul was using, well, that's what becomes the the New Testament, doesn't it? It's those same people who wrote down the Gospels and the Epistles and so on. That's what we have, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of it pointing to Jesus. You see, God's word, it, it reveals Christ, it rebukes the scoffers, and it rallies his people that's what God's word does. It reveals Christ. All of it Old Testament, New Testament, pointing to Jesus. Everything the world needs to be saved is found in these pages that we have open in front of us. And it also rebukes the scoffers. Remember the pattern that we've been seeing. It rebukes and warns those who would oppose Jesus. But it also rallies God's people. Remember that final quote that Paul. Uh, used from Habakkuk, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See God's plan to save His people is brought about through His people, empowered by His spirits. See God's words rallies His people as well. Everything we need as God's people is right here in these pages. Do we believe that? Are we Are we confident in that? When I was at university. Um, 20 years ago now, but um, the culture, I think, that I was at university in was, was, was very kind of postmodern in its approach, you know what I mean, that there's no longer any definable truth or reality. Everyone was very critical, sceptical about anything that's said differently. Well, I think now we're in a culture that's, that's moved on even from that. Now we're saying that truth is whatever you say it is. You decide what your truth is. You go and live your truth and don't let anyone stop you. If are Christians here this morning, God says that his word is truth. This is true. This is urgent. And this alone is what people need to live rightly under God and in this world. We've got to believe that. We've got to hold on the scriptures as good and life-giving and right to listen to and hold out. We've got to believe that it has the power to bring life to others, to reveal Christ to the world and and stand against whatever criticism comes its way. Do we see people will always try and discredit the Bible? They always have done, they always will do. But it still has that same power to save people as they hear and believe the gospel of Jesus. So let's be confident in God's word, in the power of it. And this confidence, it's not just to be an intellectual thing. Maybe we all know that in our heads. We've got to show that confidence by what we do with it. Let's be brave in in sharing it with with people at work and our housemates, schoolmates. Let's be brave in, in sharing it. And let's be committed to regularly listening to it, to sitting under God's word, whether that's on our own at home or in a small group or youth group or coming Sunday by Sunday. Let's demonstrate that we are confident in God's word. And look, here's the second thing as we come to a close. The second thing I'd love to see is that we can be confident in God's plan. Now, I hope that you are enjoying this series and I'm really loving it because it's exciting to see how the gospel is spreading out wider and wider around the earth as God builds his church. But of course, this plan, this plan that we looked at again back in Acts 1.8, well, it's a long way from being completed, isn't it? God's salvation plan is, is not just to the ends of the earth. Well, it's also to the end of the earth or the end of the age, as Jesus puts it. That is when Jesus comes back again the mission of salvation, it doesn't just involve travel. It involves time. It's geography plus history. The Holy Spirit is still at work calling people one by one, people like us, and then stirring them to join in his work. Now, it's easy for us as well to look around at our culture and be discouraged. You know, church attendance is dwindling. Society pushing more against christian values and christians moving from being gently mocked maybe to being pushed out of society we're seeing that same progression i think now that we saw in the passage of opposition growing that anti-christian movement leaders in power being incited against believers cancel culture shutting down free speech forcing christians to toe the inclusive line at work and school when it's really anything but inclusive. It can feel hard. It can feel hard, can't it, trying to live as a Christian now. But we can be confident in God's plan. He's still building his church and nothing will stop him. Remember the pattern that we've been seeing again and again today. The gospel is preached and some believe, some scorn and some oppose. That's always what happens And always will. So let's not be surprised or disheartened. When it does, our goal is simply to to carry on the work of witnessing to those around us. And to leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. So we can rejoice when people come to faith. And when others scorn, well, we can just kick the dust off our feet and move on to others. See, This isn't the itinerary of a Mediterranean cruise or a street party schedule for the Plated Jews. This is God's glorious salvation plan for Gentiles and Jews. Are we confident that this plan will prevail? And again, that confidence, it's not just a head thing. It's not just head knowledge. That confidence is to show us in action too. Now, I don't want to dismiss at all the, the role of that kind of reactive, spontaneous witness that we've seen as well. We want to be ready to take every opportunity to speak of Jesus as God brings, the, as God brings them about over the garden fence, in the, in the playgrounds, down the pub, by the water cooler. Take those moments when they come. But I hope we're seeing that it's right for us to be planners as well. Now, we're a, we're a biggest church here at Christchurch, and we, we often schedule ways for people to hear and think about Jesus beyond our Sunday gatherings. We're on our Hope Explored course, tackling life, carol services. That's why we have church plant prayer meetings, because we want more people to come and hear the gospel in our city. Now, we don't do them uh, simply for the sake of them, you know, to keep busy. We do it because it's right to be active in prayerfully thinking creatively about how we can help people hear the gospel. And I hope you make use of them. It's good to do it as a church together, but it's right to do it individually as well. I remember um, an older lady in our our old church back in, in Oxford. I remember her saying that every day she would go into town and she would pray at the start of it that God would give her an opportunity on the bus to sit next to someone who she can talk to Jesus about. More often than not, he would. It's a simple little thing: one person praying every day that they could have a chance to speak, to Je- speak of someone, speak to Jesus, uh, speak to someone of Jesus. Small little thing. Do we think like that? Are we, are we proactive in thinking what can we do today to witness to Christ? There's loads of opportunity here in Cambridge for us, loads of opportunities. But there, are, there might also be opportunities for some of us to go overseas, just as Paul and Barnabas did. You know, we support a, a number of mission partners here at Christchurch. It's been great having Margaret Ugira with us um, in this past couple of months. But we've got others that we support, out in Ethiopia and Hong Kong and, and France and other places. We probably don't talk about them enough. Maybe we should do that more. And we certainly probably don't, don't put the challenge to us here. Could God be calling you to go overseas? I was reading this week that... Um, still 40% of the world is considered unreached. 40%. I was thinking five, 10. 40% of the world is considered unreached. That is, they've never heard about Jesus or don't have any ongoing indigenous witness. 40%. three billion people. The plan is not done yet. Maybe that's something that God is nudging you about this morning. But look, for all of us, here's what I want us to take away. Be confident in God's word and confident in God's plan. Jesus has given us the outline of the plan, the beginning and the end. So let's prayerfully think together about our role today, this week, this month, this year, in keeping the gospel spreading around the world. This isn't the itinerary of a Mediterranean cruise. This isn't a street party schedule for the Dubes. This is God's salvation plan for Gentiles and Jews. Let me close this in a prayer, and I'll hand back to Steve. Lord God, it is exciting to see the gospel spreading in these pages and we are thrilled for the blessing of you having called us, your people, into that plan. And we pray that you give us confidence in your words and that your plan will will one day come to fruition in the Lord Jesus when he returns and give us everything that we need to hold him out as we witness to him in our lives here in Cambridge. In Jesus' name, amen.